The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, December 5th, the So Long Kamala edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thursday Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Before we get started today, I want to remind all our listeners to call in for our annual call-in show. We're going to be answering your is it sexist questions. Uh, please leave us a voicemail at 973-826-0318. You can also, if you must, email them to thewavesatslate.com. Uh, the deadline for those is December 15th. We've already gotten a couple good ones, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what y'all send in. All right. Our topics this week, we are going to start with Kamala Harris, who dropped out of the Democratic presidential primary this week, just yesterday, actually, as of this taping. Uh, Then we're going to review Frozen 2, the new sequel to one of the most popular princess movies of all time. And finally, we'll talk about Black Friday, the ever-expanding holiday where we celebrate reduced-price retail. (laughs) And Nicole, what is our Slate Plus segment this week? For Slate Plus, we're going to ask, is sassy mom gear sexist? And uh, for those who are unfamiliar, sassy mom gear is um, T-shirts, apparel that says stuff like, this mom runs on coffee, wine, and Amazon Prime. Um, So here's a clip from that. It's very hard for me as someone who, until I was about 35, always wore a T-shirt with with like a slogan on it to be like too judgy about this. Was it like, LOL, I need a margarita? That kind of thing? Sure was. Or was it, uh, you know, some write-on? Mine was obviously like some write-on, like, lazy feminist kind of thing. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether Sassy Mom merch is sexist, you can and should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right. Senator Kamala Harris of California dropped out of the Democratic presidential primary on Tuesday Her campaign had been having trouble for a while. Uh, She laid off most of her staff in New Hampshire about a month ago to go harder in Iowa, but she never really got a foothold there. And even in South Carolina, where she had initially intended to put the bulk of her resources because the Democratic electorate there is majority black, she was only polling in fourth or fifth place. Um, So, yeah, she pulled out. And I have to say, I have been consistently surprised that she hasn't done better because I think she has an incredible charisma, almost Mm -hmm. like a stage presence that made her really famous while she was, you know, giving the business to Jeff Sessions and Barr in the hearings um, in the Senate. She also has a resume and sort of center left politics that I thought would appeal to a significant segment of Democratic voters. But. A couple of things have worked against her, most of which is her fault, but not all of which is her fault. Um, She has reportedly run a divided and disorganized campaign with sort of two main leaders, one of whom is her sister, um, and their respective teams. They were often at odds with each other. More importantly, she never really landed on who she was and what she believed, or at least I don't think she she effectively communicated that to voters. She changed up her catchphrases and her stump speeches a lot, unlike somebody like, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or 
or, you know, to some extent, um, Joe Biden and certainly people like Andrew Yang, where you're like, OK, I know exactly what your main issues are and what you stand for. Kamala would say she, you know, supported single payer health care and then sort of walk it back a little bit later. I think one of the biggest missteps of her campaign was her inability to figure out how she was going to portray her history as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I think she she made a valiant effort in reframing that as, you know, I was a criminal justice reformer. I, you know, am ready to prosecute the case against Trump. I'm going to be an ally to LGBTQ people. I fought hate crimes. But when you have all these people on the left saying, you know, you're a cop and, you know, why did you defend the death penalty and why did you um, threaten parents with prosecution when their kids didn't attend school? And, you know, you're trying to please that demographic. And then you're also trying to say, yeah, but like I did a lot of good things as a prosecutor. Like she should have come up with uh, an actual way to explain her history that was true to herself or if not true to herself, at least consistent. She would kind of, you know, go back and forth between whether she wanted to lean into it or or lean away from it. Um, But the last thing I want to say is at the beginning of her campaign, people were really bullish on her and, and believed she had a lot of potential. She was doing also really well after the first debate where she went after Joe Biden on the busing issue. And I think I should have known that her campaign was ill-prepared for a presidential run when after that she came back and said, I criticized Joe Biden for not supporting busing, but also I'm not even sure whether I support mandatory busing. (laughs) If you can't even stand behind the criticism that made you like popular and that people really responded to, what are you doing running for president? Mm -hmm. So that's what I think. What do you guys think? So I've never gotten her at all. I don't know how the Democratic Party was trying to make her a thing. And it's so complicated discussing her exit because on one hand, it is true that it is incredibly difficult for African-American women especially, but for women of color run for office. And I just did never got it. I feel like there has been an effort to make her a thing since um, the 2012 Democratic National Convention where she gave a talk. And I just think she's not compelling. I don't think she's a good candidate. Not even her personality? Not at all. Oh. <laughs> and I, I know she creates so much anxiety in me because <laughs> um, I think that I can be particularly generous in this political climate because I understand that no candidate's perfect, blah, blah, blah. I just think she wasn't very good. And racism and sexism makes things impossible. So Mm -hmm. both of those things, I think, can exist at the same time. What's interesting about the analysis of her departure um, is that there's this weird strain of punditry like, oh, my God, I I can't believe she's gone. It's like, well, she wasn't that good at it. (laughs) So it's not surprising. And I think she did do something very smart. And maybe in one of the first acts of self-awareness that I've perceived in her, that she kind of left at the right time so that she can... There's a new narrative about what how amazing she was, but she wasn't. And so I think she left at the right time. I think that she will probably angle to be someone's VP, yeah. maybe even Biden, because I don't put it past her. But I think she was really challenging because it was one of the few times where there was a woman of color um, in politics who was the national spotlight, who was actually mediocre. So yeah. I don't know if we think of that as progress <laughs> or what. But she wasn't... I. I just never got it. Um, And I think it's unfortunate because she didn't really hit her stride until it was too late. I don't think she is the person 
who stood up to Biden. I don't think that's her because she wasn't clear about her position on busing. And she's not a Medicare for all person, especially coming from the state of California. And she's not a radical reformer. Mm -hmm. She's someone who was shape shifting. But I think the best thing that her campaign did was her making doses with Mindy Kaling. That was really like, (laughs) that was adorable. And I think her fonts were good. But that campaign, I just feel so badly. And I have former students who are working for her. And I'm so proud of all of you for the fight that you've put in. But yeah, I've just been so deeply unimpressed with the way the campaign was run, the lack of messaging, the lack of vision. And I think that um, their inability to have a cohesive narrative of why she's even running for president, I think was the beginning of the end. Yeah, I'm similar to Marsha. I never could figure out what I was supposed to think about Kamala Harris. I don't know um, what exactly was the truth and she didn't seem to be very or her team didn't seem very interested in beating back some of those Kamala's a cop kind of uh, narratives that were out there and you know she I also think that she had a lot of difficult stumbles to correct that were back to back to back and that her team just kind of decided to you know maybe apologize for one thing and then ignore something else and they didn't really know how to stay on top of all of the stuff coming at her so um yeah i just wasn't sure why i should vote for her other than oh it would be something new in the white house you know um which would be great of course but again that can't be enough. Um, so things like her mental health policy that recently came out that was very, um, I don't know, it seemed both confusing and detrimental to people with mental health um, illnesses. What it's, was that? I think she was trying to make sure that people were um, given more access to institutions and forced drugging and things like that. Um, and, you know, that's a very reductive, oversimplified uh, view of it. And But it was, if there was just a lot of confusion about how is this supposed to be good, especially considering she was one of the first to um, bring out a disability plan in general. I think back in August or earlier in the summer, maybe she did that. But, yeah, I'm not sure uh, what, what I was supposed to feel about her. And I think... You know, someone like Mayor Pete, he's able to do the aw shucks, I just didn't know kind of thing. And obviously being a white man helps with that. Um, And that kind of forgiveness is not typically allowed a woman of color. So she had, um, again, like all those obvious isms that come into play. I wish that she had been able to stay on top of things. And with the whole um, the campaign aide who left and and put out that blistering um, opinion piece about how terrible. Actually, a resignation letter that made its way to the New York Times. Right, it was, "Hmm." yes. I wonder Um, how that leaked out. (laughs) Someone left in the subway. (laughs) You all are making me feel really shallow because I have to admit, I liked her. And I, but then when I examined, you know, when she dropped out and I examined my, oh, I was read several other pieces and I was reading in one of them that she was running on a tax cut and pay raises for teachers. And I thought, oh, I had no idea of that. Yeah, you know, I yeah. had no idea actually what her policies were. I was, you know, I've watched the debate. So I like, I have that sense of it. But really, that's about positioning. And I just know that I loved her laugh. I thought she was really <laughs> cute. And um, <laughs> like, it's terrible. It's terrible. And, and I, I do think, but also like in this bloody field, 
Like, come on, Joe Biden. Like, I will not do my Joe Biden thing again because I know it's become <laughs> dull. But like, come on, come on. And um, so, you know, given but I, I absolutely think that it's very it's the first like strategic move she's made mm-hmm. is to drop out now, get positive attention. I think she is a very strong VP candidate because positions are maybe less important for a, a vice president. Maybe. I don't know, especially in a field where the leading candidates, many of them are pretty old. Uh, the vice presidential <laughs> position is pretty important. But um, yeah, I just I'm I'm feeling bad about my my shallow self, uh, and I also do feel like it has. Even though I didn't know what she was particularly standing for, um, it does feel like the field feels less. I don't know, robust, less less representative, less interesting now that she's gone. And again, I think that's pure shallowness and and kind of responding to identity politics. But uh, if, I'm sorry, it- she's gone. I think it does matter that she is gone. And I think it does matter that Julian Castro Mm -hmm. can't break through. And I think it does matter that, you know, she said in her statement really pointedly, I'm not a billionaire, so I can't finance this. And it's financially irresponsible. And I actually liked the framing of why she had to pull out, that this was not viable and this was not responsible. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there is a way that people exit these races in – without being as transparent as possible. And, you know, with all the stories that are coming out about the problem with the divided campaign, the East Coast office versus the West Coast office, the complications of having her sister um, so close, I, I feel a lot of empathy for the position she must have been in to think, who can I trust? Who can be the people to really give me the feedback I need? And then there's this whole campaign mechanism that's unable to do that. But I hope that in the um, autopsy of what happened to this campaign, that people really think seriously about some of the limitations of candidates from California and the way that they do communicate with a national audience, as well as I'm curious of what kind of support she got from the Democratic establishment for her campaign. And because I think that the money issue as well as the blessing of the DNC does matter. I mean, that was an interesting thing. So we're in this race with so many candidates and there have been very few um, and there have been very few endorsements. But she was the second, you know, she had the second yeah, biggest number yeah. of endorsements. And I think that was partly because the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, some members of, of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, endorsed her and there have been relatively few endorsements. So it kind of boosted her number. But I think that there there did seem to actually be, as, as much as the establishment and the party is still on the fence, there did seem to be a little bit of more support for her from the establishment than kind of I would expect given her, you know, her relative position in the race. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me. Uh, and, and I agree, like it also shows, I mean, again, this is a really obvious thing, but like Iowa and New Hampshire. I know you're from New Hampshire, Christina, but this we cannot let this happen. <laughs> I don't support New Hampshire having the first primary. I think yeah. it is Awful. it is a profound injustice. You know, this isn't the Democratic Party's fault, uh, but, you know, that New Hampshire and Iowa are still the first two primaries, states that are 90 percent or more white. But the Democratic Party should be ashamed that the way it sets up its debates, 
and his primary is such that Tom Steyer can yes. buy his way into the debate yes. mm-hmm. and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Julian Castro can't. People who actually have political experience and things to say and aren't just, you know, throwing their money at the problem. I think the fact that Kamala Harris brought up the fact that she wasn't a billionaire, I appreciated that too mm-hmm. because, you know, I I think her departure, I mean, taking into consideration everything we've just said about the material faults of her campaign – uh, also serves to highlight the barriers that women and people of color face when they're fundraising. Mm-hmm. I was looking a little bit at fundraising numbers, and only five candidates are getting half or more of their donations from women. Four of them are women. Kamala, Elizabeth Warren, Marianne Williamson, and Amy Klobuchar are getting about half or a little more than half. Julian Castro is the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and women have less money to spend. Women always give, you know, on average, less money than men do. Uh, And, you know, women are supporting other women and men are supporting men. Um, You know, that's obviously a broad generalization. But like the way it plays out is such that women have to work even harder to get money for their campaigns. Um, And, you know, when even when they have the support of women, like Kamala Harris was disproportionately popular among black women. they th- those populations just don't have as much money to give. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to something I think Marsha said earlier about the possibility of Kamala running as Joe Biden's VP if it gets to that point. And I I absolutely think that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're going to build off of their the way they bumped heads at that debate. Um, And, you know, I think this will also be a way for Kamala to actually get presidential experience because what's going to happen is Joe, if Joe gets in the office, um, possibly because of, you know, some of the, again, the fumbles that he's been having that could be indicative of, you know, hey, maybe it's time to retire a little bit. Um, I think that that will mean she is in the position to be making more decisions than perhaps we would be aware of in the general public. Um, So I think she's being very strategic about positioning herself now. And it does garner that sympathy. And it does make people kind of want to be like, oh, but we don't want her to go away. How can we, what can we give her to keep her around? And so, you know, it will, I think it will become kind of like, you know, let's make her a VP or a VB candidate at least. Um, And I think her appeal, if she had been able to stick with the um, sassy auntie vibe (laughs) that she would sometimes display, you know, I think if she had been able to do that in the way that Joe is still able to hang on to his Uncle Joe personality, I think if she had kind of, you know, just built that up more, um, maybe it would her campaign would have been more successful, um, particularly since, of, you know, she does not have any biological children of her own. And I think that there are a certain um, group of people who need to see a woman be maternal in some kind of way. And so if she had, um, you know, shown more of that, I think uh, it would have pulled more the the more conservative people over to her side. I think they were responding to her lack of policy and and a lack of actually standing for something like if you're supporting Kamala what are you supporting Marsha you look like I don't know (laughs) you know the way that Nicole described a Biden Harris ticket is like a horrible Hallmark movie yes Um, (laughs) you know but I but but I think the dynamics are important when you're thinking when you're thinking about VPs but I think 
part of the challenge of this very anxious election cycle is that um, this question of pragmatism versus radical um, upending of the system, everyone's kind of stuck in these modes of what's going to happen. I think part of the problem with her and Amy Klobuchar as former prosecutors Mm -hmm. is that they have to kind of arrange themselves around their past and have to demonstrate some type of reflective thinking. And I think part of her problem was she would she would kind of reflect a little bit about what it meant to be a prosecutor, but not kind of fully give in to say, you know what, I'm really humbled by this critique and here are the ways that I'm going to try to yeah. pivot. I think there are very few candidates who are actually able to do that. And so to think of her and Biden together, like Mr. Tough on Crime, Mr. Anita Hill, and the like cop together, the hijinks, I just am not ready for it, <laughs> on how those two are going to try to navigate the minefields of their political record. That's some um, malarkey right there. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I guess it, it may not matter to older black voters. But again, I don't think this will be one on just everyone who voted in the last election. It's about bringing new people to the table. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know who these two people pull. Yeah. Right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Listeners, if you were a fan of Kamala Harris, if you're sad she dropped out, or if you think this was a good strategic move, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Frozen 2 opened in theaters in late November. Marsha, give us your thoughts. So I've never seen Frozen before. So I Ditto. started I started with two. And please help me if I get this wrong. Frozen 2 um, <laughs> reunites um, our two wonderful ice-related <laughs> <laughs> heroines, um, Elsa and Anna, as they confront deep family secrets, mm-hmm. betrayal, colonialism, <laughs> um, relationships, and wonderful adventures in, can you say the land that they're from? Arendelle. As they seek to better understand why is Arendelle seeming to change? Um, the snowman's there, the boyfriend. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't introduce this segment. Um, they're You're doing s- great. There's songs. Um, there's animation. Um, but I think... <laughs> All accurate. <laughs> but I think um, for people with... Um, children in their life who want to expose them to something that's a little bit different in terms of the types of fairy tales that are available. Here is a story with two female leads. And in many ways, they are subverting some of the tropes of being just a princess or being an ice queen (laughs) and um, exploring the various ways that they have to deal with change. And so even though I'm not a Disney fan, I was really I was actually really shook by this. I was like, this is a very deep message. Yeah. There's also a subtext about reparations mm-hmm. and climate change. Mm-hmm. Or am I projecting? Oh, no, no, no it's all there. <laughs> I loved this movie. <laughs> I and hated it. You know, I especially having some young kids in my life, I am thinking so hard about the messages that kids get. Um, and. So part of me is so happy to see this movie where, um, you know, the the love story is basically between two sisters. That was sort of the big twist in Frozen 1 was that, you know, uh, one of the one of the princesses, I actually forget which one, could only be saved by an act of true love. And it was actually the love of her sister all along, not the love of the man in her life. I guess it was Anna. Um, you know, it's it's great to see 
this movie where even the princess that does have the marriage plot ends up being the plucky heroine who saves the day. And, and you know, it's incredibly exciting to see uh, a movie about two young-ish women confronting the bad behavior and the violence of their ancestors. Like, that is a, a really deep storyline um, for kids to grapple with. And I think it's presented in a way that is extremely legible to children. You know, just to, not to give too much away, but, um, you know, the the two sisters are trying to figure out um, what the truth of what happened, what their grandfather did long ago um, in his uh, interactions with the indigenous community of Arendelle. But at the same time, I just couldn't get around the fact that, like, the way their faces looked, you know, (laughs) they have these, like, big eyes and a small mouth and these, like, tiny bodies. And the male characters look like actual people. The female characters look like something out of A Bug's Life or something. (laughs) And, like, I know that it's... It's kind of a boring critique to say, like, oh, you know, the, the what sort of body image issues are these princesses giving kids? And, you know, why does it always have to be a princess with long flowing hair? But uh, I don't know. I just even as I'm excited by the subversive elements of Frozen 2, and I actually laughed a lot during this movie. I encourage adults to see it, too. Um, I I. It's still the the you know princessification of society is not something I'm ready to like let up my critique on. What did you guys think? Like Marsha, I did not see Frozen One, although like I think many people, it's so much just in the atmosphere, especially like it seems like every other kid has some kind of frozen gear on. Like you go to like a holiday like not sing along but like a holiday concert where like they're kind of doing the messiah and then suddenly for the uh you know not in a like serious way but like in let's say a community kind of thing and then at the end they do a sing along of let it go and suddenly everybody's singing like it's just like the the way that that song and that you know and and the huge success of it the fact that it was Mm -hmm. you know such a massive hit that it was the first movie directed by a woman that grossed more than a billion dollars the fact that it was so, so successful, like, even though I hadn't seen it, I felt like I kind of knew it. Yeah. But then I went to see the movie and, like, I liked it. And it was weird because I went on a day where we'd had snow in New York, so there weren't very many, even Aww. though it was soon after the, um, yeah, <laughs> there's an awe aspect to it. But it also <laughs> meant that there weren't that many people in the theater, even though it was close to the opening, and there weren't any kids in the theater. And so, you know, as you say, it, it's something that adults can enjoy. But um, it just meant that I, I feel like I didn't get the full Frozen experience without kids making those, like, kid noises. <laughs> kid that noises, they make. yeah. I have a question, though. Which one, Anna or Elsa, is Maya and which one is Kamala? Because, oh. uh, you know, <laughs> sister stuff Ooh, is obviously big is, these days. You know, I found it boring at some point. I just, mm. I couldn't get my head around it. The songs were really not good. Mm. And I... Couldn't I don't understand if I'm just so not the audience for it. Even when I was a kid, I was awful and I wouldn't like this um, because I didn't like anything. <laughs> but I know, but part of it was the music didn't seem as inventive. Yeah, yeah. As other Disney things that I I've, think you're I guess right. I've seen, and you know the performances. I, I think Kristen Bell is just so charming, and um, Adina Adina Menzel. Don't John Travolta. No, Adina Menzel is you know. Like, wow, talk about range. And so no one was doing anything bad, but I do feel like 
this was maybe not as thoughtfully made as some other mm-hmm. um, things and the Disney enterprise. But I read a lot about the director and some of the dynamics in Disney. And again, I think it's so interesting that Disney, which appeals to children, also, I think, markets a lot of their things to women. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this idea of you can continue the kind of childlike fascination into your adulthood has like no women at the top of yeah. the enterprise. And it reminds us that it's not just STEM. It's not just the sciences. It's across all lucrative industries where there's the absence of women mm-hmm. in places in which you really can't see why. Um, and to think about, you know, gender dynamics and animation and to Christina's point about what these characters then look like, how they're rendered, even when they're trying to undermine the tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I did notice that I wasn't sure if I just didn't understand animation, why the women looked so weird <laughs> to me. I thought it was maybe some technology that I hadn't read about. No, it's it's just the way Disney makes its women look. And the movie starts with Anna and Elsa as children playing with dolls. And I thought it was like sort of a meta commentary on the kids who might come to see the movie where Anna was, you know, playing with dolls and she's like making them kiss and so excited that they're falling in love. And then Elsa was like, but what about the enchanted forest? Like marriage won't save the enchanted (laughs) forest. And I do think that there's two kinds of kids who might come and see this movie. They're satisfied with Anna's marriage plot and they're you know, the kids who want to see the princess fall in love get that. And the kids who want to see the, like, moody sort of goth, lonely girl, <laughs> like, be lonely and step into her power, which was an actual line from one of the two power ballads that they're trying to make replace <laughs> Let It Go. Um, you know, get to see that and get to see her chart her own path. And I think it's interesting that girls have seemed to latch on to Elsa more than Anna, in part because... Anna didn't have as much of a heroic line of plot in uh, the first one. This one, I think she comes into her own a little bit more. Um, But also because Elsa's loneliness Mm -hmm. and her feeling of not fitting in and her self-doubt is so relatable that anybody can sort of project whatever they want onto it. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, I I think it's a good thing that the – or, or maybe promising that the character that girls have latched onto is are, is not the one whose whole thing is about finding love. Yeah. Um, but I also don't know how the, if I like the fact that there's not really a villain anymore. Like some of the Disney villains were some of the most compelling characters, and now in this, you know, in the first one, Elsa was almost sort of the villain. She was. Uh, there was somebody trying to kill her, but also she was sort of just competing against her own power. In this one, it's something bad that happened in the past. Well, don't you think history is the villain? <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. Like, the historian. Yeah, no, patriarchy and history are the villains. Yeah. And even when they're not present, they are ruining things, Oof. was what I got from it. This is why people don't like me to babysit their kids. <laughs> um, but, I, but I also think that, did this movie come out around the Thanksgiving holiday? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's also really interesting. So yes. I think that if you, you know, take your kids to this and then are reflective about what the myth of Thanksgiving is, it kind of works. Yeah. But I do wonder if this style will then take hold of over other Disney projects. So I'm not quite sure what other things that Disney has put out since Frozen, but do you think that this will be the outlier or do you think this will be the kind of new way that these movies are made? 
I mean, Moana was similar oh, in that, you know, it wasn't a love story. The villain was actually just misunderstood the whole time. She was angry and sad. She wasn't evil. <laughs> um, and, you know, the same thing with Frozen, where, you know, the things that sort of seem like villains, these angry forces of nature, actually just need to be seen and need to be approached in a in a welcoming and, like, well-stewarding way. And, and Elsa can deal with that, and she can figure figure out how to do that because she's also been misunderstood. Inside Out is another Disney movie that was oh, very that similar where it wasn't really a villain. It was, you know, grappling with uh, negative emotions and sadness. Can I tell you, I cried the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, that, I could not watch that. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think this is going to be the new norm for Disney, both the, you know, not relying so much on love and marriage being the ultimate goal and the you know, they're not being a real manifestation of evil. I want to say in part because Disney has been criticized for racism, sexism, fat phobia in its portrayals of, you know, some of what I consider to be the best villains of all time, Ursula and Jafar and and what have you. Like looking back on them now, I'm like, yeah, that those were terrible tropes <laughs> that they were illustrating into their villains. Yeah. And the um, queerifying of the villains as well, yeah. you know, not saying that they were um, gay or anything, but they obviously had some, you know, some, some characteristics. Yes, <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, obviously, I didn't see Frozen two, so I'm really interested. I'm, you know, been listening to y'all talk. I saw the first one, which I enjoyed for what it was. But my song from Frozen <laughs> was "Do You Want to Build a Snowman?" because it reminded yeah, me so much of my relationship with my sister. I have an older sister, uh-huh. and she's like, she's seven years older, so it was definitely like, Angie, can I come play with you for me? <laughs> And so to have to see that, like even now, I some I'm like a little prickly behind the eyes just thinking about being a kid and wanting to play with my big sister, and she's just like, no, I'm a teenager and evil right now, Um, that kind of thing. So I really, that's the song that I downloaded that I bought. I also wonder um, about the villain thing. I think that that's interesting that we're moving away from this, and I wonder if it will also help. Because we see more children being open about their struggles with identities. Um, and I'm wondering if that is something that's on the horizon for our Disney to hmm. eventually get to. I don't think it'll be very soon. Yeah. I think it'll take another maybe 10 years <laughs> before there is a trans um, princess or a prince or something like that that comes from Disney. But I think Disney is testing the waters for things like that. There was a really interesting um when Maureen Dowd spoke with uh, Jennifer Lee, the direct, the co-director of Frozen and Frozen 2, and uh, she asked her, well, you know, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter about maybe making Elsa queer. And Jennifer Lee said, yeah, you know, I really did an intense uh, Myers-Briggs uh, personality <laughs> test. that's how you find Elsa. out if you're gay or not. Exactly. Pseudoscience. <laughs> that was pseudoscience. Yeah. I'm a EI split NFJ and a lesbian. No. Uh, but... Um, and she said, I did this intense Myers-Briggs and I found out that she's not yet ready for relationships, which is like, yeah, there's so much like you got to, you know, you need two hands to like wipe away the bullshit from that. But it was interesting, like the idea of a character, a beloved character, a character who's probably better known to the under what, tens than any other character in literature like, that's pretty interesting to me. Not yet ready for a relationship, but yeah. also not presenting it as like people coming on to her and offending them off, which I don't want to see that. And I don't right. think kids do either. But it's a kind of fascinating. I wish that could have been more foregrounded and not in a piece in the New York Times that 
a <laughs> tiny number of people. Really. Yeah, because you have to love yourself before you can truly love someone else. And I think she, Elsa's still working on that. Yeah, that true. <laughs> um, did you see Frozen, listeners? Did you take your kids to see it? None of us saw it with a kid, so I would love to hear how actual kids are responding to it and not just, like, cynical 30 and 40-somethings. Um, Thank you, but, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Please email us at thewavesatslate.com. Black Friday, no longer just a Friday. June, what's what's going on here? So as we all know, if we live in this capitalist society, Black Friday is the greatest day of the year. It's the day when things go on sale. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> and this year, there's been a lot of coverage about the sort of tweaking of Black Friday, both as far as when it comes to the like extension of Black Friday. Now you got all these spin-offs like Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday, and of course, not part of this exact time range, but Amazon Prime Day. Um, and also, there's been coverage of how some retailers uh, decided to make a stand against Black Friday, uh, which I have my views on. I think it's um, a little bit of a... You don't have to put things on sale. You don't have to uh, hire extra security. You don't have to spend more money, but you get coverage about your great mm, policies. Mm -hmm. But um, it is interesting to me that obviously the holiday season is so geared to gift giving. The whole fourth quarter is so geared to spending money that it does seem as much as I'm cynical about uh companies positioning themselves as being do-gooders just because they're, you know, taking a slightly tweaked view of Black Friday. It does seem interesting. It does seem like something is shifting, uh, even though nobody's saying, so we're just not going to sell anything this quarter or we're just not going to put anything on sale at all. I don't think anybody's doing that beyond maybe taking a sort of stand on one day. But do you guys think something's shifting or, or is this just more a new bit of capitalist bullshit? I'll vote bullshit. <laughs> um, Shocker. This is, this is, I know. <laughs> this is what I think is happening. Um, I think that this is really animated by a class divide of yes. who wants to be associated with Black Friday and who doesn't. And so I think for a long time when people were critical of Black Friday, of people storming Walmarts for cheaper TVs and Best Buys, there was an association with people, you know, who would actually shop at Walmart all year round, mm -hmm. not just that one day. And so there was a kind of class analysis of it. And then there was a rebuttal that said, you know, it's a person of privilege who can make fun of someone who has to go to Black Friday to get deals. And then people... I think we're more vocal about the necessity of Black Friday deals in order to meet needs, not just for gift giving, mm -hmm. but for basic needs. Mm -hmm. And so people kind of got off the gas in, in critiquing it. But the types of brands that are advertising that they're not going to open on Thanksgiving Day or even close on Black Friday, I think are interesting because they're brands that are discounters all year round, like the TJ Maxx brands. You don't think of TJ Maxx as a Black Friday destination because they don't discount in those ways. And then REI, I mean, come on, I'm also a member, so self-disclosure. <laughs> so I say this with a lot of self-awareness, but the REI crowd are not people who are often worried about saving $20 on the newest game for their kids. The stuff in that store is super expensive and it's a co-op and you're a member of it and they're encouraging you to go outside instead of shopping. So there's a, there's a kind of class signaling in these decisions. But I also wonder if some of it is that retail is tanking and paying workers yeah. overtime or holiday 
pay to mm. work on Thanksgiving may be cutting into the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, when the makeup brand or the beauty brand um, from The Ordinary, the DCM um, yep. company, put out this year that they were going to do uh, Black Friday for the whole month of November because they realized that people were waiting and everything was selling out. And I think also that translated into, um, you know, angry customers right. who were mad that they could not purchase anything. It probably also translated into back orders or trying to fulfill the supply, this rush supply that they um, maybe did not anticipate. So things like that, I think, do just end up pointing back to the company's bottom line, even though they try to say we're trying to look at the environment and all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's nice. You know, it reminds me a little bit of cafes that put up these little signs that say, you know, no Wi-Fi, talk to each other. Yeah. You just don't want to pay. You just don't want to pay an extra bill. That's yeah. fine. But say that, you know, like don't shame us because you can't afford Wi-Fi. The kind of or powerful. Or you just don't want people sitting there for four yeah. hours. Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, all reminds me of that. So um, and for me, I have not really done much shopping on Black Friday, but I have noticed that with these extended um Black Friday weeks or months or whatever, that I've done more holiday shopping for myself than for (laughs) the people Mm -hmm. around me. And that made me feel very bad because I still have this feeling of rushing to get, you know, presents for my immediate family or whoever I'm going to get presents for. So that really didn't help me on an emotional or psychological level when it comes to gift giving. Um, And then I feel bad about these lovely things that I have in my apartment for myself, but I'm going to keep them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I always feel like a psychology experiment proving the hypothesis right whenever these sales come out because I'm like, oh, a sale. And I Mm -hmm. open like 10 tabs of things that I want (laughs) from, you know, and I'm like, I must buy it today. And then and it activates this intense, like scarcity mindset, in part because I do know that retailers will jack up the prices the rest of the year Mm -hmm. just to be able to discount it. And you know, especially when it's a limited time sale that we're led to believe it is better than all the other sales. It's not just a sale. It's a Black Friday deal. I, I feel like there's, you know, fear that I'm going to be taken advantage of if I don't buy things on Black Friday. But then I usually never do because I'm like, OK, I don't need like yeah. 10 sweaters from The Gap <laughs> just because they're 50 percent off. I do think it's interesting that the sort of anti-Black Friday discussion has become less about, well, don't you want to spend time with your family and and not go shopping on, you know, Thursday night or Friday morning, and more about the environmental impact of, you know, fast fashion and mm-hmm. sort of mass consumerism and buying a ton of things from Amazon and getting them shipped to you. And it made me wonder if all sales are unethical or all Mm -hmm. efforts by companies to encourage mass consumption are unethical. Well, it's also tied to two things that are related. The quality of goods, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to produce lots of cheap goods that people have to constantly replace and feel like they have to update. But I also wonder if some of these companies are moving in this direction in order to anticipate recession losses. 
So do you hedge your bets by saying, well, you know, we took a different approach to the fourth quarter and we're going to, you know, we're going to feel it. But I think our customer loyalty will go up as a way to say, like, listen, we're on our way to economic freefall. This is a happy message. (laughs) Happy holidays, everyone. The economy is going to crash. Or is it a way of trying to readjust expectations for earnings um, in the next few seasons? I don't know. But I do think that we always have to remember that these companies don't do anything off of a whim or an impulse. These are really carefully researched, carefully crafted messages that um, they have to always come up with a plan to absorb the consequences of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do a lot of shopping, uh, but I bought two relatively expensive items, more than I usually Mm. spend the week before Black Friday. Because I just happened to see them. I don't typically see things that I like. And I was like, I had the money, so I bought them. And then immediately after, I'm like, ah, Jesus, I paid full price. And next week, they'll go on sale. And sure enough, at least one of the things did indeed. I paid $100 more than I needed to. That's part of this, you know, the psychology and and just the thing that's in the air of like having to, well, strategize about, I mean, instead of just thinking, do I want this? Do I need this? Can I afford it? You're like, should I buy it today? Because Mm -hmm. maybe next, and like, come on. Like, there are just too many things, you know, too many parts of this mental calculus. Um, And I think the more we, you know, next year, will I not buy things those in the, the month before Black Friday, because, you know, so I, I, yeah, I think there's definitely considerations happening in companies to like try to de-emphasize the bargain hunting. They can say it's for the sake of the planet, but probably it's more for the sake of their bottom lines. I'm really curious how it spread outside of America. Like, what was the rationale and the language that people used? Because I saw that there are Black Friday sales in England. And I'm right. like, y'all yep. don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Exactly. Why? What, how, what was the pitch to get that exactly. happening? So. Well, and they also have it in Canada when their Thanksgiving is in October. But the, the, in Britain, I, I swear, Black Friday happens on about 25 different dates. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, Even you know, in the U.S., though, I mean, this yeah. is the, I think the first year that I... And and one of my colleagues who writes a lot about consumer culture, Shannon Palace, agreed with me on this, that this was really the first year that we've seen people using the term Black Friday, like not even in November, for like a <laughs> Black Friday preview sale or something. Yeah. So now it's just become like I think people have responded so intensely to that term that they're led to believe that it's an incredibly deep discount that you you must buy now. And, and you know, it obviously convinces you to buy things that you don't necessarily want or need and, and might not have purchased had you not been uh, led to believe that it was a now or never situation. Yeah. No one should buy gifts. My final statement on that. <laughs> All right. Marcia said not to. <laughs> the official position of the waves on gift giving. Don't do it. All right. That's about all the time we have for Black Friday. Listeners, did you get any good deals this year? Were you shopping for Black Friday all week? Let us know. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. All right. It's time for our recommendations. June, why don't you start us off? All right. So I've long been aware of the writer Val McDermott. She is a crime writer. She's been writing books for decades. She's got at least 30 mysteries out. And she's a very out lesbian. She's very big in Britain. She, um, partly because uh, some series based, you know, TV series based on her characters uh, have been very successful. But when a new Val McDermott book comes out in Britain, it's it's a big deal. It's sell a lot of copies. So I think she's less well known in the U.S., um, 
and I like a mystery and I like her, uh, but I've sometimes found her series a little bit harsh. Some of them are just in a more of a kind of creepy uh, than I I really care for us. You know, (laughs) I'm sensitive. Um, But of late, I've read three of the books in her Karen Pyrie series. Uh, these are about a um, a woman who runs the historic case unit in Scotland. Uh, so, you know, you get that cold case thing that I like. Um, there are three that I've read recently, Broken Ground, Out of Bounds and Darker Domain. Uh, that last one is about the miners' strike in a, in a way. So that was interesting. Um, and they are twisty and turny, but they're still credible. And although the author is a lesbian, her main characters typically are not. But at the same time, there's usually at least one lesbian uh, who shows up somewhere, which I appreciate. Um, and so if you fancy a not too confronting, uh, but uh, quite satisfying mystery, I recommend the Karen Pyrie series of mysteries by Val McDermott. Uh, Nicole, what do you have for us? Um I have an Audible original, which is a um, book, an audio book, um, and it is called The AI Who Loved Me by Alyssa Cole. <laughs> and it obviously it's a romance. And um, uh, it stars Regina Hall, Mindy Kaling, and Fyodor Chin. Um, you know, the chapters are read by the different um, characters in, in the book between Regina Hall's character, which is Trinity Jordan, and Fyodor Chin's character, Li Wei. And um, Trinity is this woman who is um, recovering from a major accident and her neighbor's nephew comes to stay. And Trinity realizes that she is attracted to the nephew, Lee Wei. And it turns out that, you know, he's not human. So (laughs) what happens when, you know, a robot starts to feel human and falls in love and things uh, get steamy at some point? So, um this is actually my first audiobook. I tend to read. I like physical copies of books. I, I do read it like on a Kindle or whatever, but I do prefer a physical copy. And at first, the experience was a little weird for me because I felt like I could tell that the narrator was reading and I didn't like that. I don't like being read to as an adult. <laughs> um, but then I think they got more relaxed and more comfortable in, in the storytelling um, of the story. So I recommend it because it actually held my attention. I sat and listened to it for five hours while doing laundry. It's a five-hour read. I just ate it up in one sitting. So um, if it, you know, roped me in as someone who has normally stayed away from audiobooks, I think it's pretty good. And if you're interested in romance and sci-fi and all this other kind of stuff, I recommend it. It is The AI Who Loved Me by Alyssa Cole. It is an Audible original on Amazon. And if you're into robots... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Robot sex. Uh, Marsha. My recommendation is an article from this week's Atlantic.com, The False Promise of Morning Routines by Marina Corin. And it looks at this type of, I guess, morning routine porn mm. that I love <laughs> about how powerful and successful uh-huh. people start the day. And it's always like a 4 a.m. Soylent shake and then a 10-mile <laughs> run and then meditation. And then, you know... By 6.15, I'm ready to take on the day. And just, you know, why we're so fascinated by 
this idea that in order for us to be our most productive, our most whole self, we have to have this morning routine that takes us away from all of our responsibilities. And so it's a very um, thoughtful article and it's well-researched. And I think for people like myself, it's a reminder that there isn't just one way to do anything. I need to read that because every time I read one of those morning routine things, I feel terrible about myself. (laughs) Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show that premieres this coming Sunday. It's called The L Word Generation Q. June, you knew I was going to recommend this. Um, It's a reboot of the pioneering lesbian-centric series, The L Word, which ran from 2004 to 2009. So, it's been a decade since we've seen wow. our friends Bet, Alice, and Shane, and they're back along with four new main characters and a couple of other great supporting characters. Um, the thing about a reboot is, I mean, I was so nervous for this show because I feel simultaneously extremely protective of and extremely critical of the original L word, which I think is a pretty common sentiment among people in in my circles, at least. Um, And I was worried about what this next one was going to be like, you know, whether it would do the first one justice, whether it would be much better than the first one, which it needs to be. Um, And I think it, it pretty much succeeds. I mean, part of it is just it feels good to be back in the world of these characters who I've, you know, whose show I've watched many, many times. Um, But also, I think it does a good job of not getting stuck in, you know, what has been or or getting bogged down in sort of fan service. Um, It it has a lot of really good new storylines. There's multiple stories about the intersection of race and class, which I found very interesting. And it's incredibly sexy. Um, And oh, my God, the wardrobe is incredible. (laughs) So I have to recommend it to anybody who liked the original L word or who just loves a good sort of soapy, glamorous drama. Um, It premieres on Showtime this coming Sunday. Before we go, I want to give one more pitch for our call-in show. We want to hear your Is It Sexist questions. We will answer them in our episode that runs in the holiday period. You can call us with your questions at 973-826-0318 and leave us a voicemail. Or you can send them to thewaves at slate.com. You have until December 15th. That's our show for today. Thank you to Katya Kumkova, who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance as well. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.